This morning we are continuing on our, our mini-series. Actually, this will be the last, last message of this little series. Uh, we're going to be on vacation the next couple of weeks, and uh, just kind of looking forward to that. And yay! <laughs> is, is that a yay? Yeah. You're, <laughs> thanks. Um, so we are continuing on with that, and this morning we're going to look at uh, the common good a little bit. Uh, David Brooks, who's a uh, columnist for the New York Times, he says that distrust is a cancer that's eating through our society today. That uh, this distrust sort of kind of began in uh, the 70s when we began to distrust institutions like, uh, like corporations, the media, healthcare systems, government, uh, even church and, and faith organizations, faith institutions, that they begin to, be, to, to the trust began to erode back in the 70s. But he says now that it's now it's starting to spill over into the neighbors, into the people around us, the people we, we have contact with. He said years ago, according to a study, that when people were asked, do you trust your neighbor, 60% of the people said yes. Today, 30% say that. And if you're a millennial, only 19% say that. That 73% of millennials uh, believe that that people are, are out to get them and are ready to run over them, just given the chance. And can you imagine going through life like that? Can you imagine going through life thinking that everybody is hostile towards you, that you can't trust anybody, that uh, you can't try building a church or some other, other community when you're in this atmosphere of hostility? Uh, trust means that we kind of share the same assumptions, that we understand how people are going to change lanes on the highway or stop at a stoplight, or that we just have some norms that we, we kind of live by, and those things have just kind of disappeared. They've just kind of been eaten away. And he says it's like a cancer that's eaten, eaten through our, our lives, this idea of, of distrust. So how do we, how do we rebuild trust? Well, we do it by becoming trustworthy, by seeing people who feel invisible, unheard, and we make them visible, and we listen to them, we hear them. That's how we become trustworthy. That if faith in God disappears within a church, then the church falls apart. When trust falls apart, in, when faith in other people fall apart in society, then society falls apart. And he says, that's what's happening today. And so there is a way we can do it. We can, make, we can become trustworthy. And that is where we're going to talk about the common good, of making people seen and heard. And this isn't some theory. This is stuff that's concrete. This is stuff that has to do with, with soup and table and bread and work and, and life and, neighbor and, and caring for our neighbors and doing favors for them. It's very, very concrete when we talk about the human uh, the common good. So we're going to look at three questions this morning. What is the common good? Why us? And I mean us Christians. Why does it fall on us to do this and not everybody else? And how do we do it? So what do we mean when we talk about the common good? What are we talking about here? Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And that's kind of the idea of what, uh, of what we're talking about, the, the, um, uh, the common good, that it's something bigger than us. Uh, Jonathan Swartz, who's the CEO of Timberline Boots, 
and shoes. A lot of people are here around here know what Timberline is. <clears throat> he says he does, he's, a, he's a believer, and he says, I don't know of a corporate environment where people do not want to believe in a truth that's bigger than themselves. It's part of who we are. It's, part of, it's just the natural part of being human. Um, the common good, uh, Tom Nelson in his book on uh, Made to Flourish, he, de he defines it this way. He says, the common good is when all aspects of my life contribute positively to human flourishing, both as individuals and as communities. In other words, everything about us contributes to the good around us, in our community, to individuals, to the people next door to us, the people we work with, to individuals. It's, uh, it's, part of the, it's part of Christianity. It's part of the Reformers. It's part of the Reformation. We saw Martin Luther, you know, he says it's, it's embedded in us to do this. John Calvin says, you may say, oh, I work, I have my trade, I set the pace. But he says that is not enough. For one must be concerned whether it is good and profitable to the community and if it is able to serve our neighbor. So this is nothing new. It's been around, it's part of in Christianity since, the, since really the beginning. And the Reformers really hit on this really hard. But it's not just Christianity, it's not just Reformers. It goes all the way back, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted Jerry to read that passage out of Je Jeremiah 29. Because the, the, God's people have been battered and brutal, brutally uh, beaten, and Jerusalem has been destroyed and razed, and then all these people were taken, taken off to captive in exile in Babylon. And you would think the last thing they wanted to do was put down roots in, the, in a foreign land, but that's exactly what God told them to do. He said, have families, go to work, and he says, pray for the welfare of the city. Pray for the, the condition of the where you are, wherever you are. And I know sometimes the church feels in exile. Well, guess what we're supposed to do? Pray for the welfare of the city. And it's interesting, I don't know if you caught that, but welfare was mentioned three times in that passage. And it's the, it's the translation of the, of the Hebrew word shalom, which is well-being, wholeness. And he says, this is what you were supposed to do. Pray for the wellness, the, whole, the, the wholeness of the city where you are. He says, the people rejoice when the righteous prosper. Why? Because the prosperous, the righteous, will do good things for the community, will do good things for the common good. So it is part of Christianity. It goes all the way back to God's people in Israel. And that means a few things for us. That means that, uh, that we have to raise the bar. That means that the bottom line, it needs to be adjusted. The bottom line in, in America, we know, is the bottom line is, is your profit. And there's nothing wrong with making profit. That's what business is for. There's nothing wrong with making a living at all. But for Christians, it's something else also. There is another bottom line, and that bottom line is the common good. That bottom line is how are we contributing to people around us in community and as, as individuals. It means that, uh, that for many, we, we hear the word tolerance a lot today. And all I have to do sometimes is say the word tolerant, we need to be tolerant, and I can almost feel the eyes start to roll. Oh, here we go again, sensitivity training. Well, tolerance for Christians is the bar too low. We're called to go beyond tolerance. We're called to go beyond that, that people who aren't like us, people who have different opinions than us, people who don't look like us, or even people who rub us the wrong way, we got to go beyond tolerance. We go to agape love, common grace, 
of loving people in spite of that. And of course, that means that, that we also have to let God be God. There might be a lot of people who deserve a little bit of justice here. But we need to let God be God. That's his job, not ours. We are called to do something else. We are called to go beyond that. Uh, there's that German word, schadenfreude, I think is what I pronounce it. I'm not sure, but it basically means we delight in the misfortune of other people. That's not the Christian way. We go beyond that. We raise the bar. So that's what common good means. So why us? Why does it fall on us? Well, that's one of the reasons why I wanted Jerry also to read the story of the Good Samaritan. It falls on us because we are gospel people. We are gospel people. We are God's people. In the story of the Good Samaritan, there's a lawyer that comes, which is, uh, you know, you're going to go, yeah, typical. A lawyer comes to test Jesus, and, uh, he's, and he says, well, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what kind of, well, how do you read the law? And he says, well, love the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm, I'm guessing that the lawyer was familiar enough with Jesus' teaching that he said what Jesus wanted to hear. I'm just guessing that. And so Jesus said, and he said, uh, that's right, you've spoken correctly. But then trying to justify himself, so but who is my neighbor? And if you go back to Leviticus, it kind of implies that sons of Israel are your neighbor. The people of Israel are your neighbor. It kind of goes on and says you're also supposed to treat people who are in the land well. But basically, it's kind of restrictive. And of course, we know the Pharisees even, even narrowed it even further than that. The Essenes, they, they believe that you should love only the sons of light, which means other Essenes, and then hate everybody else. So he asked the question, well, then who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells that one, that famous story, probably one of the most famous stories out of the New Testament of the Good Samaritan. And that story kind of has some shock value in it. It is meant to provoke. It is meant to shock. And uh, it's got some value, it's got some, uh, some, some very provocative statements in here. And a couple of things that are provocative are the people who pass by. We all know the story. The guy was walking on this road, normal road, which was dangerous back then. And somebody, some robbers, some people came and, and they stripped him and they beat him and they left him half dead. And then there were two people who passed by, a Levite and a priest who passed by who should know better. And I'm sure the guy's thinking, well, if anybody should love their neighbor and love this guy, it should be these people, but they don't. They pass right by. And the person who does stop is a hated enemy, a Samaritan. Now, this is not a contrast between who should help and who shouldn't help. It's not a contrast between Jews and Samaritans. It is a contrast between who is God's people and who is not. And he says the, people, the, the, the ones that you would think were God's people are the Jewish men who have the credentials, but it's not them. They pass right by. The one who's identified as God's people is the hated enemy who has a human heart. That's the one. That's the one who is God's people. The one who works for the common good. That is one of the greatest stories that we have in the New Testament that shows us about what gospel people are supposed to be like. Paul tells the Philippians that their citizenship, as Christians, their citizenship is in heaven. They have a heavenly citizenship. 
A lot of people think, well, the idea behind that is, well, okay, I'm here on earth, but this is not where I really belong. I really belong in heaven, and I'm just waiting to get evacuated there, and that's where I really belong is in heaven. That's not what Paul is getting at at all. The Philippians knew really well, they knew really clearly how, what Paul was getting at. Because Philippi is a Greek city, and it was full of Roman citizens. And all these Greek cities were full of Roman citizens. Why? Well, one reason, they, the, the Rome encouraged people to move out because of overcrowding in Rome, but also they were to keep hold of the empire. They were to hold on. They were agents of Rome in the city. They weren't planning on going back to Rome. They were agents of Rome in the city. And he's telling them, you are citizens of heaven. In other words, you are agents of your, of your heavenly place. You are citizens of heaven. You are agents of the gospel. You live in the city, not because you're waiting to go back to where you really belong, but because you're functioning as somebody different. Somebody different in the city of Philippi. You are agents of heaven. And the early Christians took this really seriously. They really knew what Paul was talking about. They knew what Jesus was talking about. They took all these things really, really seriously. They, they lived in these cities, and they were different. And people would question them and say, well, well, are they a different religion? Well, they don't have a temple. They don't make sacrifices, so I'm not sure. Are they a different ethnic group? Well, there are Roman soldiers in this group, there are Jews, there are Greeks, there are Africans, there are men, women, they're slave and free. I, I don't think it's an ethnicity group. Are they political? Well, they do shine a light in the police, the city where they live, but they're not really aligned with any political movement necessarily. Well, are they dangerous? Well, they're kind of subversive. They, they kind of do some things that are countercultural, but they're not violent. So I don't know. And they're thinking, these are the people that I want alongside. If I'm in trouble, I want them to be with me. I want, to be, I want them on my side, if possible. And they're looking at this, they're looking at this, this group uh, that they call Christians. They say, well, they, they, they don't say Caesar's is clean, they, is their king. They say somebody else is king, this, this Galilean named Jesus. They call him Lord and Savior. And they're kind of weird but I think I want part of that. Those are the people I want by my side. Those are the people I want with me. These kind of people. And so they took this very, very, very seriously. So what are we supposed to do? How do we do it? Uh, I don't know if they started it, but everybody, most of us know what a flash mob is these days, don't we? It's these groups of people that do these artistic things in a, in, a, in, a, in a big mob, in a mall, or, a, or something like that. Well, I don't know if this is the first one or not, but it's the first one I ever saw uh, about 11 or 12 years ago, and uh, it was a mob in uh, Macy's at, in Philadelphia. And they have an organ in the balcony, and the guy's playing the organ and stuff, and uh, interspersed with all this crowd at Christmas time in Macy's department store were members of the Philadelphia Opera Company. And the organ stopped and began playing Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus of Handel's Messiah. And so pretty soon, the women, the women and men of the opera company began singing the Hallelujah Chorus, and everything stopped. And, and people were looking, and then they started singing. You couldn't even tell the difference between who were the opera people and who were the normal people. And people were holding their kids up, and they were filming it, and they were recording it, and it just changed the whole atmosphere. And I thought, this is, an, this is a perfect metaphor 
for us as the common good, working in the common good. How do we do it? We simply, we simply perform our faith in the public square. We perform our faith in the public square. That's what I think means to work for the common good. We perform our faith into the public square. We're going to look at three P's this morning for the common good. Three P's. <clears throat> One is we must prepare. How do we do that? You can't be part of the drama. You can't be part of the play. You can't be part of the story unless you know the story. So we have to prepare. We have to prepare and know the story. We have to know our own story. We have to know the story of society, but we also have to know the gospel story. It's deceptively simple. I mean, we could spend the rest of our life exploring it, but the story itself is really kind of simple. And that is that God created this wonderful universe, this beautiful creation, and then something went horribly wrong. The, the, the pinnacle of his creation, human beings decided to rebel that they could do it on their own. And God had the option of just crumpling it up like a sheet of paper and throwing it in the trash and starting all over again, but he didn't do that. He decided he was going to rescue it and restore it. And so that's what he did. And he sent his son, he sent the Savior, he came and visited us in person with his, show us his rescuing love. And then through the crucifixion and the resurrection, he launched a new creation. Over the summer, we looked at seven values. And part of my point was that these values are embedded in every human being, and we know that's what, the, we know that's what God wanted, but at the same time, it, it, even though it points to God, because they are broken, they also point to us. And we understand in our own hearts uh, that, that justice has been, has been robbed, that love has been trampled on, and power has been abused. We know that in our, in our, in our bones, we know that. And that's why the crucifixion plays across all cultural barriers. Because it still makes sense that this was like, in all of its irony and horror, the cross is like the, the ultimate expression of our brokenness. And everybody gets that. We all get it. And then this, this crucifixion that we did, and then the resurrection of this victory, the victory over corruption and the victory over death. That's why the gospel still communicates 2,000 years later and still communicates across cultural lines. It still makes sense. And we have to learn that story. And we, so we must prepare. Um, prepare to learn that rescuing love. Let's see if we get the next one here. And then we must practice it. We must intentionally live out the gospel, intentionally develop the virtues that are required. In that same section that Paul talks about being citizens in heaven, or having our, having our citizenship in heaven, he goes on in chapter 4 to say, this is how you're supposed to live, this is how the behavior is supposed to, supposed to be, and so we develop these virtues. Uh, in, in Galatians, Paul calls them fruit uh, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, forgiveness, self-control, all these virtues we are to develop and practice them and practice them over and over and over again. Any actor who's in a, in a play will tell you they have to memorize their lines, they have to take stage directions, they have to uh, um, uh, look at for emotions of how to communicate these emotions. And at first that may not feel 
you know, really natural to us to practice these things, but the more we practice them, we actually become them. We actually become love and joy and peace and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. We become those things. And so we have to practice them, and, and we even have to practice those emotions that, that expand our range of emotions. And yes, it may feel weird at first, but then it actually becomes more and more natural. And then, I, oh, I got a couple of quotes here. I forgot about those. Uh, Abraham, Abraham Heschel, who's a, a Polish rabbi who wrote on virtue, he said, I used to value cleverness. Now I value kindness. And then my other favorite quote comes from um, uh, Jimmy Stewart from the movie Harvey. If you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. Put out in 1950, I think. Uh, I would do it in my Jimmy Stewart imitation, but I'll spare you that. He says, uh, years ago, my mother used to say to me, she'd say, in this world, Elwood, you must be, she always called me Elwood, in the world, you must be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. Well, for years, I was smart. I recommend pleasant. You may quote me. <laughs> the point of all this is we develop these virtues. This is how we practice, and we practice and live them out intentionally with disciplines. And then... <clears throat> And then finally, we must participate. We must participate. A lot of, and a lot of churches feel this way, but, it, but it's not supposed to be this way. A lot of organizations have this division between the professionals and the audience. You watch a football game this Sunday afternoon, today, this afternoon, and you're going to see the big audience in there. You're going to see you know, 22 men on the, on the ground who need, who need a rest, and you're going to see all these people in the stands who need exercise. You know, I don't know if you remember that. And uh, so you, you'll see that there's a difference between the professionals and the audience, but not in the church. The church is different. There is no dichotomy here. The audience are the professional. The people in the audience are the professionals. We are to participate. And I just want to mention a few things about how we can participate. We are called to invest, first of all. Uh, this is one way we can, we can participate. We invest in good things. Uh, Amy Sherman, she wrote a book on stewardship, and she says, we are to take our money, we are to invest in what makes the world rejoice. And, uh, and Sue and I have been talking about this for several months. We have a couple of IRA Roths, you know, like a lot of people, and, and uh, we start questioning, where, where's this, you know, we're with this guy who was kind of a friend of the family at Wells Fargo, and says, where are they investing in all this? Do we even know? And because we know absolutely zero about finances and economics, we absolutely know zero about where this money is going. And should we be careful about where we invest? Do we be investing in things that make the world rejoice? So, <clears throat> where, where are we investing? Uh, Jeremiah 29 was right. They, uh, that they invest in the city. Uh, there's a saying in the business world that what is smart is right and what is right is smart. And people say, oh, but if I do this stuff that's, you know, invest where you say it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin it, it's going it's gonna, to, I'm going to lose money, you know, and this is going to help my, fix my retirement stuff, when reality is what's right actually is the smart way to go. And what is smart is actually the right way to go. We are called to create. We don't think that the gospel ended with the resurrection. It was just the beginning. And we are participating in God as co-creators. And that means we are all creators. All of us are creators. I have no artistic uh, talent at all. Uh, but we are all called to create. Whether you're creating a painting or whether you're creating a, a spreadsheet, we are all called to make. And what does, what does that 
how do we do that? We infuse whatever we're doing with love. Everything we're doing, we infuse with love. And of course, the, base, the great historical example of that is Brother Lawrence, who became famous about his walk with Christ. And what was his job? He was a dishwasher. He infused his dishwashing with love. And that's what it takes to create. Infuse the spaghetti sauce with love. There's a great Mexican movie called Like, like Water for Chocolate. And the whole point of this thing is how, uh, how their food is infused with their emotions. And there's a great scene where she infuses, she's crying and preparing the food for wedding, and she's crying over this, this, this a lost love herself. And pretty soon people are eating all the, all the food and the party, and they all start crying, you know. And, uh, of course, the other it works as well. You infuse it with love, and people come with love. That's how it becomes making. We're called to, we're called to create. We're to accompany him in his creative work. We're called to protect. Protect those who are vulnerable. Protect those who are weaker. We're called to do that. And a couple of examples come to my mind. One is social media. We need to protect each other from social media. We need to protect our children from social media. And it's not just talking about, I'm not talking about pornography or other things like that. Uh, that's a threat. But I'm talking about just the interaction between the people on social media. I, I heard the testimony of a young girl who said, who was describing this, this, um, this event. She went to a high school dance. She said it was the most fun she had ever had in her life. She said, it was just, I just came home on cloud nine. We were just so much fun. It was just this great time to be together. And I came home, and then she said, the next two days I went into this spiral into depression because all the photos started appearing on Instagram. And she said, I looked so ter ter terrible on those photos. I looked silly. I looked dumb. I looked goofy. And she just went into deep depression. Nothing really attacking her. It's just that she was there for all the world to see and all of her silliness and, and ugliness is what she thought. We need to protect them. Um, there's the, uh, the gymnast uh, Den Hollander, I think her name is Rachel Den Hollander, who she was the first one to speak out against Larry Nasser as the, uh, the, the doctor who abused the, the women's gymnastic team. And now she works, she's a believer, and she works with churches to help churches deal with protecting, protecting the vulnerable. And she says, I, the first question I ask them is, what is a girl worth? What is a boy worth? Because we can go and go, we're just outraged by what's going out there, but when it hits home, then we might want to cover it up, or then we might want to keep it quiet, or then we might want to make, make exceptions. And she just says, what are they worth? We are called to protect, and finally we are called to restore. There, I could go, you could go on with all kinds of lists. These are just four that I thought of. We're called to restore, to fix, to fix marriages, to fix relationships, to fix uh, um, depression, to fix, to come along and, and restore people to their, their God-given ability to function in, this, in the society. Uh, that we become you know, aggressive in our friendships, kind of, kind of speak. That we fix unity, that we pursue unity, not just within our congregation, but across racial lines, across uh, political lines, across all kinds of uh, class lines, we're called to fix these things, to fix the disunity, fix the distrust, and create for us. Uh, David Brooks goes on, he call, calls these people weavers. 
that these are the people who are weaving back the fabric of society, that are fixing the tears and fixing the holes, that we become weavers. We need a Rosa Parks moment when she decided that I was not gonna live a divided life anymore. As Christians, we need to make that same decision and say, we're not gonna live a divided life anymore. We're gonna live what I say I, we believe, and that's the common good. I lied, there's one more P, play. We need to play. Spiritual awakening in our society will not happen without lightness, without laughter. Americans love food and sports, and we need to capitalize on that. We need to play, we need to learn how to play, we need to laugh. I need to learn how to play, Sue will tell you that. That any spiritual vibrancy doesn't happen without laughter, without lightness. In that book of Philippians where Paul tells them that they are citizens of heaven, he uses rejoice nine times in that book. And that idea is to be happy, to be excited, to be, it even has an, a, a connotation of volume. It needs to be loud, not obnoxious, but it needs to be loud and, 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 and visible. So what makes you happy? Making a difference, worshiping, those things make you happy. Making new friends make you happy. Food makes you happy. That makes me happy. Um, small victories make me happy. Meaningful work makes me happy. What are those things that make me happy? And, and go for it. And go on those things. And bring others with you on it. Because with the joy, with the play, comes a really renewed focus on the story. There's a historian named Samuel Huntington. And I, I confess to you, I haven't read the book. I've just read that Kindle introduction, you know, that Kindle sample that you can get, Kindle sample you can get on Amazon. But um, <clears throat> he's a historian who wrote in 1980s, early 1980s, 1981, I think. He wrote a, story, wrote a book called American Democracy, The Promise of Disharmony. And he says that just about every 60 years, America goes through this mass disruption, this, this moral uh, catastrophe, the moral, uh, moral collapse sort of thing. And uh, he says, where we start reorienting everything. He said the first one was in the 1760s that then led to the Revolutionary War. And then later one came with, with Andrew Jackson and the populist movement. And then another one came with the Civil War. And then the early 20th century, the 1920s, early uh, World War I, those times. And he said that and then the last one was the 1960s. And he wrote this in 1981. He said, probably around 2020, we should expect another one. How prophetic. He said, but the good thing is, it causes us to rethink. And my point is, this is a time for the Greek word metanoia, of repentance, of changing. And nobody likes it. It's miserable. But we can come out of it different. And I think the church can play a role in this, in working for the common good. That these moral convulsions that happen with new groups, new generations, new technology, new pandemics, new whatever, they can actually change the way we think and turn us around. Dorothy Day was one of those people back in the early 20th century where it was real to her. And somebody told her she needed to write a memoir. 
And for her, it wasn't theory, like I said before. It was practical. It was concrete. And so she goes, I sat down to the paper and I wrote, I wrote uh, a life remembered. She goes, then I sat back and thought. And he thought, all my life I have been blessed to have the Lord in my mind every day. I thought about him and his visit to us centuries ago, and I've had that with me all this time, and that's enough. That's enough. She closed it, never wrote the memoir. Because Jesus was in her mind all the time. We can make a difference in the common good by performing our faith in public. Performing Christianity, and I don't mean in an artificial way, I mean performing, acting out our Christianity in the public square. And there's a lot of people who, who don't want any part of the church, and yes, we've had our failings, I understand that. And the church feels deceived. They feel like the culture is out to get them. Well, if there's one thing I could say this morning about the common good is be not afraid. Be not afraid. The world is not out to get us. It's not out to get you. In fact, we have what the world is hungry for. We have this spiritual gifts, and we have these spiritual disciplines. We talk about what's going on in the soul that the secular world does not have. So the world is not out to get us. They're hungry for what we have if we can show it and live it. If we live like we're under siege all the time, then that undermines our calling, it undermines our mission, and it even undermines our own happiness. Move beyond that. We share the goodness. C.S. Lewis called, it, called Christians the good infection, that we're like a good virus. That infects, the, that infects the community for the common good. We perform our faith in the public square. A couple of times a month, we perform it together. We reenact it together, the gospel, by taking communion. So we are going to take communion this morning together. And um, we have our little two-in-one things here. Um, so what I will do is I will read a, a passage. I'm going to read a passage out of John. John chapter 12. And then I'll pray for the bread, and we'll take the bread together. And then I'll read, uh, continuing the rest of the paragraph, and we will pray for the cup, and we'll take the cup together. <clears throat> 